Open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. And um, I can already tell you we're going to get off to a rocky start here because after communion, leading up to that hymn, I turned my Bible open to Hebrews 12. But we're out of Hebrews now, aren't we? But the book of Hebrews has much to do with what we're learning in Acts. And perhaps that's why my mind just went there. Praise the Lord. It's good to be gathered as his people coming before his holy word. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Before we get started, does everybody have a sermon outline? Uh, Brother Nolan's not here today, so I don't know how good I did of making sure everyone had the sermon notes. Um, kids, do you have your note that I made for you, your special one I made for you? Okay, so I want all the kids to have that. I'm going to talk about that. All right, we're all prepared, so let's come here to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 14 to 21. 14 to 21. This is going to be the text for today, and Lord willing, we'll we'll make it through the entire passage, so let's look at the text together, and then I'll ask the Lord's blessing upon His Word. Acts chapter 2 beginning with verse 14 down to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judah, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Holy Father, we once again confess that Thou art the one, the true, the only mighty living God. O God, we ask that from the storehouse of your wisdom, Lord, from the riches of your power that brought into creation all of the known cosmos and the things that are unseen and that are governed and sustained by the very power of your word. We ask your blessing, Lord, upon us. We ask that you would send your spirit to prepare our minds, to prepare our hearts for an understanding 
of your word. Lord, we confess that through thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom all your word points to, you have revealed to us all truth, you have revealed to us all righteousness, and through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his righteous sacrifice upon the cross, you have purchased us as your people. We confess that he is the only way unto reconciliation with you, our Heavenly Father. We confess that your Spirit, Lord, was sent forth to us in power, in a supernatural phenomenon that took our hearts and converted them from self-centered, prideful, conceited sinners and gave us a new heart, a heart that loves you, a heart that loves your ways, your laws, your church. We ask you, Father, would you guide this sermon? Would you help it proceed effectively? Would you, Lord, help us with the attentiveness of mind as hearers? Give us, we pray, Lord, remembrance, the faculties and the use, Lord, of our intellects to grasp the blessed things that you are revealing in your word to us. And we pray, we pray that your spirit would bring it to an effectual end, that it may edify your people, that it may exhort your people, and that we would leave this place today, Lord, knowing that we heard from you, our God, We thank you. We thank you and we bless you. And we ask you now to come. To come and use your word in our hearts and our minds and our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Acts chapter 2. As I said in my first message coming into this text, what an epic event in all of human history. There's many things that would be on the map of epic events. Noah's Flood, uh, Tower of Babel, etc., Mount Sinai, and the Day of Pentecost ranks as one of those. You all remember that I used the analogy of an airplane uh, when we were coming into the book of Acts. And I did that because the book of Acts is, returning to that analogy, like an airplane that's lifting off. And once the wheels are off the ground, you feel the lift, you feel the elevation, and you know something's drastically different and there's no turning back. And that's what Pentecost inaugurated. That's what it ushered in. It's a new era. It's a new dawn. History will never be the same. Now that thrust and that theme of understanding that things are cataclysmic different now in history, in the present age, continues to work itself out throughout the book of Acts. And we will see, as we go forward, beginning with verse 14 today, that Peter in his sermon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, definitely conveys this aspect, that a new dawn has come, that things are changing, and the The people, his audience, must repent and they must believe upon 
the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I think it's helpful, before we just jump into Peter's sermon, as part of my introduction, just to kind of highlight some things we saw in verses 1-13. through 13. And the significant things that we could highlight could be grouped in pairs of two. We saw two significant eschatological themes that came together. Remember, eschatological just means pertaining to the, the latter days, pertaining to the end of this age. There were two eschatological themes that kind of were woven together. There was, we saw, a gathering of Jews, as the text says, from all the nations under heaven. Now that was peculiar because the prophets, all 17 prophets, had been pointing to a day, the new age that would come, when God would gather to disperse Israelites all together. And here, ironically, we have them all gathered in Jerusalem. But that wasn't the only thing we saw kind of come together there that had to do with the last days. We saw by this, these Jews from all nations that are gathered together, we will see later on in the book of Acts, that out of the tens of thousands that would have been gathered there at the end of the Feast of Weeks, there were 3,000. 3,000 that God supernaturally converts. And those men, in their tongues, go back to their nations under heaven with the message of the seed, the Messiah. And so we hear at the very beginning of the book of Acts, in this transition period of God's redemptive history, we see two very important eschatological things being brought to the service and highlighted for us. And we will continue to see that as we go forward. That was very important and it will come into play in Peter's message today. We saw, for instance, two significant reasons why the sign of the tongues was given, or the gift, you could say, of tongues. It was a covenant sign. We saw that God prophesied in the book of Isaiah, didn't he? He prophesied that there will come a day toward the end of the age, toward the end of this, this time period I have with you as my covenant people, where I will send prophets and strange men that will speak strange language, and, and, and you guys still will reject them. They'll, 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 be, they'll have the ability to speak in other languages, but yet you, my people, still will not accept my message. You people still will be stiff-necked. You still will rebel against me. Now, in a spiritual sense, there was as if it was on the day of Pentecost, this gift given of languages, showing that out of all tribes and all nations that there was going to be a common brotherhood through the gospel, through the proclamation of the one Messiah over all of earth. We, we saw that highlighted as well. There was a significance, uh, uh, two significance in our understanding of Christ, his person and his work. Here we have the, 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 the Christ who was buried, who, who, who rose, resurrected from the dead, and who ascended on high. And his crowning, you could say, uh, achievement was the sending of the Spirit. We, we noticed that. We saw that this is, secondly, that Christ is still actively working, as the text said in chapter 1. So he's not just checking out and leaving his church behind and forgetting about us. So there was two important Christological aspects that we need to remember. But then, ending this highlight of the book of Acts, we saw in verses 12 and 13, look at your Bibles, there were two responses to these events. There were some, we see, Israelites that were gathered that day that were amazed and were in doubt. They were awed. They were in wonder. And you see their responses. They said to one another, what means this? They noticed it. They acknowledged it. There's something wondrous happening here. There's something amazing going on here. 
But secondly, there was another group of people in the crowd that day. And notice what they said. When they witnessed these men come out of this upper room and begin, as the Holy Spirit gave each one of them a message to prophesy and begin to speak in a language that only they would have known from their native land, notice what these men said. Others mocked. Others mocked. These men are full of new wine. Notice how those people wanted to interact with the prophecy and the utterance, that is, that the Holy Spirit was given some of the apostles. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to receive the hard truth that entails much of what Peter is going to outline in his sermonic explanation beginning with verse 14 down to verse 36 picked up by other apostles and early disciples such as when Stephen preaches his message and he's telling those Israelites all you men of Judah all you men of Jerusalem you have killed the Messiah you have rejected him you have crucified him like a common thief and many of them responded the same way that many of them were responding on this great, amazing event in verse 13. They understood what the apostles were saying. They could hear the message that was being preached. But they understood all too well the implications of what it meant. And so they said to themselves, what? These men, they must be drunk. They've got to be drunk with new wine coming up with these crazy, lofty ideas. And so, we have, for today's message, Peter's response to them. Peter's response. Now, kids, I gave you guys a handout. This is the big picture. The kids, I gave them a handout. Maybe i got to start including this in the adults' handout, too. This is the big picture that you're going to see in Peter's response to them. Some were amazed, some were mocking, and Peter's addressing them, and he does it by going and looking at the Old Testament. That's what that telescope is, kids, on that picture. We're going to see Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, preach a message to explain to those who are wondering, but much more we'll see in verse 36, explain to those who are mocking. Peter's going to use a telescope and through the lens of the Holy Spirit influencing his understanding, he's going to look back in his Jewish religious ancestry and he's going to begin to notice something that's been telling the truth all along. That the prophets, Joel, Zechariah, Isaiah, Amos, Malachi, kids, like we noticed last week, all of those prophets were pointing to this day. And so that's the big picture. That's what Peter's doing here in his explanation. He's taking that telescope and he's looking back and he's allowing now those things to explain what is occurring on this day, on the day of Pentecost. So the title of my message is very simply this. Peter's sermonic explanation. Peter's sermonic explanation of the events of the day of Pentecost. He's going to explain these events to these two categories of people in verse 12 and 13 by using the telescope and looking back in redemptive history. Now before we get into even verse 14, we've got to pause and notice something here. Peter's response is nothing less than an expository sermon. 
Peter's response is not a drama skit with the other apostles to try to put on a little skit to help the crowd there understand how Old Testament shadows were being fulfilled in his day and age. Peter did not get a paintbrush out or get a musical instrument and use artistic forms to convey the revelation of what is occurring. You guys tracking with me, right? You know where I'm going with this. He preached a sermon. We could put a lot of focuses on things in churches today. And indeed we do. Uh, for the last 50 years, I sense that there's been a lot of focuses on, um, uh, I, I call it psychology ministry. Uh, it, it's basically you're coming to church to hear how the Word of God can help you have a better life, a better marriage, a better business, a uh, better relationship with your children, etc., etc., etc. And the Bible certainly can't do that, beloved. But that's not why we gather here today. We're all gathered here today to hear what does Acts chapter 2 mean? What happened in redemptive history? And it helps me to grow. It helps me. I want to rightly interpret this. Um, I, I want to be further edified in understanding God's Word and how He moved all throughout history, which as professing Christians we're part of. That we, we said in our opening introduction to the book of Acts, this is a blessed thing about the book of Acts. It connects us with our Christian ancestors, right? And so Peter here preaches the very first Christian sermon out of 19 different messages that's recorded in the book of Acts. Peter preaches nine messages we have recorded in Acts. Paul preaches nine. James preaches one. And one of my favorite is the martyr Stephen. He preaches one. In fact, just let me quickly illustrate to you, as part of my introduction still, the importance of preaching to the early church as we see in the book of Acts. Acts 3.20 He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached to you. They were busy preaching Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 20. Go, stand, and preach in the name of the Lord, or in the temple to the people. There's that command, that emphasis on preaching. Chapter 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down quickly, down to the city of Samaria, and preached Christ unto them. Later on, same chapter, verse 25, 8, 25. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem. What did they do when they get to Jerusalem? He says, they preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began with the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. It goes toward all through the book of Acts. We could go through almost every chapter, not every single one, but almost all the chapters. And we find this constant theme of the preached Word of God. And if you think about it, in the book of Acts, you have 28 chapters. And in those 28 chapters, we have 19 recorded sermon and teaching messages, revelatory teaching messages of the Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit communicating this epic transition in redemptive history. Such an observation is why. Many scholars and many commentators say this, quote, to the early Christian church, preaching was the 
central focus of God's activity among them in the present days. Let me read that again to you because that was staggering when I read that. Preaching to them was the central focal point of God's activity among them in the present age. This is how they viewed preaching. This is why the Apostle Paul could get away with two to three hour sermons. Now, I know what you're thinking. I mean, Pastor Doug could get kind of long-winded sometimes. Paul would go two to three hours. Why would they tolerate? Well, first of all, no one could probably preach like Paul except for the master of preachers, Jesus. But secondly, they understood when he was preaching that there was a redemptive activity actually occurring and they were in the presence of it. That's why I built up this aspect in uh, opening up the book of Acts chapter 2 that the apostles, by going back to Jerusalem, the apostles, by quickly appointing Judas Iscariot's replacement, they had this heightened expectation. They were, as if it, as, as if it is, living in the moment. They were living in redemptive history being made. And we as the church of Jesus Christ, beloved, we have lost that sense of awe and wonder about what we're doing. Now, I get it. When you first meet in marriage, Brother Mike, how is it? Oh, buddy, it's fireworks, isn't it? And as time goes on, right? You've got to get the fireworks back out. You've got to keep things, you know. And I think that's exactly what happens with the church of Jesus Christ. We get up. We're battered, beat, and bruised Monday through Saturday. And we come in here and we get our shot in the arm. And praise God for the shot in the arm of just getting revitalized. Getting reminded who we are, who He is, what our purpose is, so forth and so on, right? But we kind of can get bogged down in the monotony of what we're doing. And, 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 and then all of a sudden, the Sabbath day becomes cloudy. In the weakness of our flesh, let's be honest, beloved, we become indifferent to it. And then we begin to, to do what? Then we begin to what? Not even really have a prepared heart to come and to hear the preached word. Instead, we have a prepared heart to come and criticize how the word is preached. And we're not realizing that when a man of God is faithfully preaching the Word of God, that we are actually participating in and actually witnessing redemptive history still being accomplished. He is in His seat of glory. Peter preaches the first message of Christ, what he's continuing to do. And today I have the sacred honor to stand in the same as if it were sandals and do the same activity. And together, by us being here together, gathered with one another, we are witnessing the glorified work of Christ in our present age still continuing on. Now the application of that is, I think, obvious. It goes with almost without saying that there is much preparation to be had for the man who's going to open up the Word of God and with fear and trepidation, Preach the Word of God. There is also preparation of those who are coming to receive and to hear the Word of God. It's not just one-sided, this redemptive act of preaching. Well, this is where we're going. Understanding the importance of what Peter is about to do, preach a sermon. And we want to look at his sermon and we want to ask ourselves, how is it that he explains these events that are amazing? Some in verse 12 and um, answering those who are grumbling in verse 13. Well, I propose to you 
that Peter's sermon really kind of outlines itself. And I gave this to you in your notes. It, it, it almost carries with it three main heads. Like if you were to sit down and want to study Peter's sermon here and, and note it and outline it, it's very obvious what he's doing. In verses 14 and 21, I hope to accomplish that head today. Look at it. He's utilizing Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 31. And the heading is basically what he says in verse 16. This event you're seeing is that. So that's his first heading. This is that, you see. Look at the second heading. He deals, he picks up Psalm 16. And he interacts with that, utilizing that. And his main thrust from verses 22 to 28, his second heading in his sermon, is Jesus wasn't abandoned in Sheol. That's the most creative title I could give that heading. Jesus isn't abandoned in Sheol. But look what his last heading is from verses 29 to 36. And he's utilizing Psalms 110, the exalted Christ. And he concludes this this sermon with verse 36. Look at verse 36 because this will come up later. He ends this three-headed sermon this way. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Who's he talking to, beloved? Israel. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You see why I said it's a sermon of rebuke? You see? He's reproved. He's preaching this three-headed sermon using Old Testament prophecies to get them to see you have just crucified the Messiah. So, Peter in his sermon is going to explain. He's going to use Psalm 16 to expound. And then he's going to use Psalm 110 to land on verse 36 and apply it to his audience who are gathered in Jerusalem on that special occasion so that conversion can come to the house of Israel and this new era begins to go out unto all the nations. So, let's look and pick up today verses 14 to 21. This is that, the utilization of Joel chapter 2. Now, most of your Bibles will have indications where Peter's sermon begins with verse 14. You have little notes and it ends with verse 36. And it's important for us to understand that this recorded sermon we have, you know, it's not a word-for-word manuscript. Uh, Peter didn't stand up and preach this, and this is all he preached. And we'll get into that when we look at verse 37 and moving forward. What we have, though, is Luke, who's coming in to those who would have heard Peter's sermon, and he's asking them, hey, I heard that you know the reports that the, when the Spirit came on that great day, Peter preached a sermon. What was it that he preached? And the person recounting the message would have gave the main heads. I remember Joel two. I remember Psalm sixteen. Oh, and he ended. Yeah, he ended with Psalm one ten. And you do the same thing. How many of you at work on Monday? You talk about, hey, what did you guys, what did your preacher preach about yesterday? Uh, you're scratching your head. You're trying to remember the sermon title because, you know, that's the main theme of the message. And then, you know, you've got the sermon outlines. And you may remember the heads, right? And you could kind of roughly explain it. That's what we have here in verses 14 and 21. This is the main thrust of Peter's message that we have before us. 
So let's consider here verse 14. Verse 14. I want us to look at verse 14 as Peter's addressing in a uh, rebuking way this message to the gathered Jews that day in Jerusalem by looking first at the person, the people, and the power. First, the person. The text says, Peter standing up with the eleven. He lifted up his voice. This is the same Peter who evidenced cowardness at the accusation of a woman. But something we see, beloved, has changed with him in this text. He's standing up with the eleven or from among the eleven. Peter, as we saw earlier in uh, the, the text, he was given a message along with other ones. Uh, Peter wasn't voted as the leader. Uh, Peter in no way you know, should be seen as more important than the other apostles. But we can't escape the fact that he does stand out amongst the early apostles as given this special word from God to proclaim with boldness. And so going back to our Old Testament reading with Abram, God uses faulty men to do miraculous things. Peter still in the future, we'll see in the book of Acts, he still has a problem with cowardness later on. But here, he's different. He's not perfect, but he's truly different. He stands up with the eleven, he lifted up his voice, and notice the people he's talking to, the men of Judah and all that dwell in Jerusalem. Now, this is something important that seems to be initially in the book of Acts, a central theme of the apostles' audience, Judah and the men of Jerusalem. That was, the, that was the directions that Jesus gave them and how he wanted them to take out their commission. You begin in Jerusalem, then the outer parts of Judea, and then the other, other parts of the world. Remember that? But the focus of bringing this message to the men of Judah and those all who were gathered in Jerusalem, that also was a central focus of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of Israel in his ministry was a very prominent focal point to our Lord. Now, perhaps one of the most concentrated places we could look at to convey this, I think I gave this into in your notes, is Matthew 15, 24. When Jesus, you may know that text, Jesus in that context, in his initial response to a Gentile woman who come to him to have her daughter healed, and Jesus' response to her when he initially denied her, he told her these words, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus says this because he's understanding, of course, he's God. He understood all of the promises that were made to Abraham. He understood all of the covenant obligations that God had given to the Jews. And so he came and he focused on the lost sheep of Israel. He come to Jerusalem first. And so we see the Apostle Peter doing what? He's addressing the men of Judah and Jerusalem first. Some scholars debate amongst themselves, and this is ivory tower stuff, but they, they debate amongst themselves when they look at the four Gospels and they see the relentless attention that Jesus gives to the people of Israel. They say he seems to not be concerned with the outside world at all. Now, we all know that that's not true. It's just kind of an in-house nuance. They're looking at it, you know, and, and trying to figure out why has he had this relentless attention on that. Well, it's very simple. Jesus understood himself to be the great shepherd to the lost sheep of Israel. 
He come first to the lost sheep of Israel. And He's gathering them to Himself. That is the remnant. And this new Israel, this new Israel who He is going to pour out His Spirit upon, they are going to go forth from Jerusalem as, we learned in Hebrews, as oftentimes the New Testament refers to us as Christians, the new Jerusalem, the true, the true Israels. What, what they do is they go out from Jerusalem and they take this gospel message to the ends of the earth. And so Peter, the 11, approximately 200, we'll get to more numbers here real quick, they are all the initial lost sheep of Israel that come home to the shepherd and are saved. So following Jesus' example and pattern, the apostles here, following His commission plan, granted this message by God the Spirit, they start here at home in Jerusalem in order that with time it will overflow unto the Gentile nations as well. So in this sense, we could say that Jesus' apostles initially ministered to the Jews for covenant obligation reasons, but they did so with the entire world in view. With the entire world in view. So that's Peter. That's the people. But where did, where, did people, where did Peter get this power? Where did he... Notice the text. How descriptive it is. He lifted up his voice. And he says unto them, Ye men of Judah and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you. And hearken in the Greek. Uh, by all means, stop what you're doing. Listen to me. Where does he get such boldness because this language is very reminiscent of what we read in the Old Testament from other bold prophets. Isaiah 51.1 Cry aloud, God told Isaiah, spare not. Same wording. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. That's exactly the spirit Peter's in right now. That's the mode of preaching that he's in right now. Jesus our Lord upon the cross, did he not cry out with a loud voice? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The same spirit in which the prophets prophesied. The same spirit which Christ prophesied. This spirit is the spirit that enabled Peter to do what he did. And so that's applicable to us, beloved. Not in a direct parallel, uh, but, uh, but definitely in the sense that anything we set our hands to uh, any activity, uh, any, any calling, A.J. outlined in James chapter 5, you know, the application of our faith, all of that, we cannot lift a finger. We cannot take one step without the enabling power and grace of the Holy Spirit. And so with understanding the source of Peter's power, the, the source of his strength of boldly preaching the way he did, and our deprivation sometimes of strength, our deprivation of even remotely doing the things that we know are good for us and the utilization of the means of grace and moving forward in our Christian life and sanctification, we must rely upon the Spirit of God. Charles Spurgeon puts it succinctly when he says, if we don't pray to God for a blessing, if we don't pray to God for a blessing, if the foundation of the pulpit be not laid in private prayer, our ministry will not be a success. Do you remember what Peter and the others were doing, but what led up to this sermon? They were all in one accord gathered together praying. We know God 
You're doing something. We're here in Jerusalem. We're waiting on you. The Spirit is poured out. And He stands up and He proclaims the Word of God. Look at verse 15. The, the person, the people, the power from which He operates from, He begins in verse 15, which again adds, I believe, to the proper understanding that this is a sermon of rebuke. He's, he's talking to the people, the crowd, verse 13. These are not drunken as ye suppose. He's hearing their mockery. He's hearing what they're saying. These are not drunken as you suppose. I think there's a little bit of humor here. You fools, he basically says. Look, it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock. Uh, the, the Jewish day begins at six. Most of them in, in uh, ancient tradition of the Jews would have ate breakfast at 10. Basically, Peter's saying, hey, you fools who are saying it's nine o'clock in the morning that, and that, you know, we're drunk up here and the message we're saying, we haven't even had breakfast yet. What you're saying doesn't even make sense. You're trying to escape. You're trying to explain away the rebuke of what you're hearing in the utterance that's coming from God Himself to you and, and, and exercising your conscience and you're trying to explain it away. But we haven't even had breakfast yet. So that's not going to work. But let me tell you what this is. That's where we pick up in verse 16. He tells them, he begins to tell them, doesn't he? Look at verse 16. Peter says, oh, we're not drunk. You can't get away with that foolish argument. This is that. There's the sermon heading of his first point, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Spoken by the prophet Joel. Beloved, this is where we have to stop. And we have to turn to Joel. Because Peter's going to use chapter 2 of Joel, verses 28 to 31. And when he does we have a responsibility to ask how and why does Peter do that? So turn with me in your Bibles to, to the prophet Joel. And we're going to see why Peter picks that text. Why is, he, why is he inspired to pick that text? Because he could have went to a lot of places, amen, for a text. But he went to that text. Why did he go there? What is the eschatological significance of it? Now, Joel's a very short book of the Bible, and it amazes me, it being only three chapters, how much controversy surrounded it. It's three chapters of the whole entire Bible. But there's been so much ink spilled over its meaning. And I hope that today we will be able to navigate a little bit through it and understand how and why Peter is using it in his message today. So, hopefully you kept your finger in the book of Acts, because we'll be coming back to it. But we do need to look here at the book of Joel. There's not complete agreement on when the book of Joel was written. Most believe that it was written in the early reign of King Josiah. So that means that what Joel was doing in his prophetic message would have led to the repentance amongst the people. God would have used it later on to bring about a temporary revival amongst the Jews. Right? Some believe that, no, Joel, and these are trustworthy scholars, they say, no, Joel was written at a time that was after the dispersion. Uh, the people were scattered still. 
but they still were at a place of rest. Uh, the second temple was being built, and so he's writing during that period of time. But it doesn't matter when he was writing it. What matters is what was the purpose of it and what was the theme of his message. And then when we gather that, we'll understand why Peter is using it where he's using it. Okay? So look in your notes. I gave you just a very brief outline of the book of Joel. Chapter 1, verse 2 to 20, is dealing with the invasion of the locusts. And this was the agreed upon theme amongst all the scholars. It is the day of the Lord. This plague that's going to come about in the form of an insect infestation. Just look at chapter 1 with me. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethel. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been your days, or even the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Here it is. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. This was the, what the day of the Lord was going to look at like. This is what Joel's telling them. Whatever historical context they're in, their sins of why the day of the Lord was going to be visited upon these Israelites aren't specifically mentioned. But we have to gather when they would have heard Joel's prophecy saying the day of the Lord is coming. Repent. There's hope if you repent. The original audience, the original Israelites that would have heard it, you know what they would have thought? Yeah, we need to repent. We have not been keeping His law. They knew what was going on. He doesn't spell it out, but they would have known. God did, think it this way. God just would not send the prophet Joel to say, warn these people that my day of wrath, my day of the Lord is coming upon them, but they haven't done anything. Right? That's absurd to think that. No, the original audience, they knew what their sins were. And he was going to send on the day of the Lord this plague of locusts. Now, we don't really have plagues of locusts in our day and age. It's kind of hard for us, I think, to relate to this. Even though there are somewhat modern histories. Um, uh, I know of one that I remember when uh, my daughter was reading a book, understanding the, 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 it was called One Nation Under God. It was like the book like that big, you know. She was reading it during school, and it was the whole history of Mormonism. And there's an account, and this would have been in the late 19th century, late 1800s, where they, uh, out there in Utah, they record in their history. They had planted the crops, and they're trying to, you, you guys, if you know the history of Mormonism, they were trying to start their own uh, theocratic civilization there. You guys know that, and the U.S. Army went in there and crushed it. Interesting history. But they record in their history a plague of locusts that came and almost ruined their entire crops. And there's this sense in which it's, it's, a, it's obviously under the providence of God. Obviously, God controls all things. And he orchestrates in his creation the perfect timing where all the locusts hatch at the same time. And then again in his providence, on his appointed time, he sends those locusts all to one place. They just all go in there. And if you were present, try to use your sanctified imagination, when billions of locusts are coming to your town. They're not going to Indianapolis. They're not going to Carmel, 
right? We're here in Henry County. They're coming to Henry County. And if you were to look up in the sky, billions of locusts flying. Ethel, you wouldn't even be able to see the sun. Yeah, sure, you would see a little bit. Uh, but it'd be kind of like an eclipse. The eclipse is going to happen in April. Y'all know that. You got to get ready. How many raise your hand if you got your eclipse glasses? Anybody? I'm the only one? Wow, man, I feel like a, like a nerd. I'm the only one that got the eclipse. I got my solar eclipse glasses. I'm ready for the, the full eclipse in April, right? But you'll be able to look up and you'll be able to tell there's a sun there, but it's hard to see, right? That's what the locusts would have looked like. Now, the day of the Lord is often described, you see in your notes, as being a phrase that's accompanied with these types of descriptions to vividly be metaphors to describe the utter destruction that God is going to bring upon His people on that day. On that day. Now, when Joel's giving this prophecy here in chapter 1, describing that it's a plague, an insect plague of locusts, this day of the Lord that's going to come if they do not repent. You have to remember, it's an Algarian community. We're detached from that. We go to Walmart and we buy our food. Uh, very few of us grow our food, but we are very much well, not very much, completely relying upon farmers. We're very industrialized in our agriculture, so we're very detached from it, but not them. Almost everyone was a farmer. Almost everyone grew their food. So if there was a drought or, or a plague of locusts that would eat everything, when you look into what locusts do, everything that's green they eat. They don't eat human flesh, but if they, if they did, it would be, uh, there would be no escape at all. They just come in the billions and they land and they'd eat everything. And people starve to death. People lose all sorts of income. That's what Joel's saying is going to come if ye men of Israel do not repent. That's what he's describing. This great and terrible day of the Lord. It is what? An infestation of locusts. Now we have to lay this groundwork, beloved, to rightly understand Joel 2 and why Peter's using it. When did Joel think that this pronounced day of the Lord was going to occur? Well, he believed it was going to occur. Just look at chapter 2, verse 1. Very close. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Joel. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord. It comes, for it is nigh at hand. Beloved, Joel, here in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Joel did not understand that the day of the Lord was something really far away, thousands and thousands a year. No, the day of the Lord that he's talking about that encompasses the plague of locusts that's going to come upon the people of Israelite if they don't repent? Did he think it was close? Yes or no? We're all like, yeah, it was nigh at hand, I mean, I think. Or ask it this way. If you were listening to Joel preach this, would you have gotten the impression that it was close at hand? Yeah, you would have. You would have gotten that idea. Now, Joel's not the only one that uses this phrase, the day of the Lord, to describe cataclysmic events and judgments of God upon Israel. Isaiah 34 8 uses it. He says this, 
For this is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion, or the sins of Zion. Now this day of the Lord that Isaiah is referring to happened when King Nebuchadnezzar came (laughs) and crushed them and let them out. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Before the, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek. Go. Listen, you hear this call to repentance. Seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. He's preaching this while they're still in open sin, leading up to King Joash. What I'm trying to paint for you as we're going to get to verse 21 in our text today, where the day of the Lord's mentioned, is to simply see this. The day of the Lord, it has to be understood and interpreted in its redemptive historical context. When Isaiah said the day of the Lord, it meant the captivity of Babylon. Okay? When Joel says in chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 1, the day of the Lord is nigh at hand, Joel's talking about the plague of the insects. In fact, they're going to be so fierce, he he goes on in, in this poetic, apocalyptic language and he describes them as an army. That's how, that's how fierce they're going to be. Uh, look, I think it's verse 25. Uh, he goes down in verse 2. Uh, gather the people, comes the priests, the ministers. Uh, verse nineteen. Yeah, he he gets into uh, the 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 text where he begins to describe them. Verse twenty five. And I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, and the cankerworm, and the caterpillar, and the palmworm. My great army. God, those locusts were God's army of judgment on the day of the Lord. That Joel said to the people, if you repent not, it's nigh at hand. Okay, we take that and we say, I understand how the day of the Lord was used in Joel. And I also understand as parallel comparison verses, how other prophets use that phrase, the day of the Lord. And I have to interpret when I read that passage whether in the Old Testament or whether in the New Testament, which day of the Lord is being spoken about? Is it being spoken about something far off or something that's relatively close? But there's something else when we're coming to the prophet of Joel. And you see it in your notes. And that is the use of apocalyptic metaphors. Oh, I'm so embarrassed, guys. Turn your Bibles to Malachi. This was my transition thought from the day of the Lord uh, usage in the Bible to the apocalyptic metaphors. Turn your Bibles to Malachi verses four, uh, chapter 4. sorry, Chapter 4, verse 5. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Now I told you about Isaiah. I told you about Zephaniah. We looked at Joel, how they're using this phrase, the day of the Lord. Then we get to the end of the... Old Covenant, Old Testament canon of revelation from the inspired Word of God. And notice what this prophet says, very interestingly. Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah 
the prophet. When? When is Elijah going to come? Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Who's Malachi's audience? It's Israelites. He's the last prophet before God goes silent and we come on the scene with Jesus' ministry. The last word from a prophet that God gave Israel is this word regarding His terrible, dreadful day of the Lord. And it's predicated with the arrival of Elijah. But wait a minute, Elijah's dead. Elijah's dead. God, I'm an Israelite and I hear you saying before the great and dreadful day that you're going to come through this prophet who's calling us to repent because if you read the whole scripture of Malachi, they were a mess. They've always been a mess, right? And Elijah's going to come. So we better be watching out for Elijah because that's the telltale sign that God just told us in his last revelation to us, the last time he spoke to us. He's given us this humongous clue that when Elijah comes, that day of the Lord, Whatever it is, it's dreadful. It's cataclysmic. It's at hand. I gave you in your Bibles, but many of your study Bibles ought to cross-reference in connection with Malachi 4-5. And that's the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 11, 11-14. Look with me. Jesus said, regarding John the Baptist, to the Jews who He was among, seeking to save many and bring under his wings like chicks under a hen's wings. Jesus said to them, who's he talking to, guys? He's talking to those who are putting John the Baptist in prison. Right? Truly I say unto you, among those born of, of, of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men. They take it by force for all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself, read it, is Elijah who was to come. Jesus, what are you talking about? Oh, you know what I'm talking about. You remember Malachi? The last prophet you heard from? He said that Elijah was to come. And if you're willing to accept it, that time is close. The time is at hand. John the Baptist, he was that Elijah. What did Malachi say was going to happen before the great and dreadful day of the Lord? That Elijah would come. Elijah had come. So what's next? Upon Israel. The great and dreadful day day of the Lord. Where are we at in our message today? Peter standing up. Elijah's come. He's left. What's next? The dreadful day of the Lord. What's Peter doing? He's preaching a sermon of rebuke and repentance because he understands this temple era, this economy that has protected us under the old covenant is about to be taken away. And the only hope and the only chance that any of you men of Judah, any of you men Jerusalem have, is to run to the one you have pierced and you've crucified. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't that the same sermonic theme from Stephen? 
and then James, and then nine more by Paul to the nation of Israel? It was. Well, I've run out of time. I gave you the examples. Um, It's so sad I've run out of time. I gave you the biblical examples of how the Old Testament utilizes apocalyptic metaphors to describe these cataclysmic events. Uh, Because, let's turn now, I've got to do this. I I have to do it. Uh, And I can already tell we're going to have to close, guys. We'll have to close and pick up here next week. Uh, We don't want to rush through this. What we've done today is we have, I think, substantially laid the groundwork, haven't we? That Peter is inspired by the Spirit preaching a message of rebuke to a concentrated audience, which is the people of Israel gathered in Jerusalem that day in Judea. The message that he's going to deliver in Joel 2 is going to be uniquely directly to them. And that's what we're going to see in verse 36 when he concludes it. All right. And what we will see next week is the way he uses Joel 2. He's using a part of Joel 2 that was not talking about the locusts. The day of the Lord that Joel is talking about, beginning with verse 28 until the end of the book of Joel, is talking about, is talking about a final day, a, a, a final a deliverance. Uh, and we'll look at it again, Joel. We've got to go back and see how Joel's progression, it's a progressionist prophecy. And when he gets down into chapter 2, before he gets to verses 28, which Peter recites, Peter doesn't recite the entire prophecy of Joel. He recites this one specific part, 28 through 31. And you see there, God is in in that, giving them a temporal way of escape from the locusts, from that day of the Lord. I'm going to do it. But if you repent, I'll restore you. But then he says, beginning with verse 28, there's going to be, after that day, blood. The moon's going to be like blood. There's going to be fire and smoke. But whosoever shall be... believe upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. So there was two distinct times in Joel. It it will become very clear when we look at how he's using the apocalyptic metaphors. And then, I'm giving away the punch here, the way that it's applied is Peter's telling them that that great and dreadful day is about 10 or 15 years from now. And the reason this is important, they're like, Pastor Doug, why are you trudging through Joel like this? It is one of the most difficult, controversial passages in the New Testament. You have people that say, this hasn't happened yet. We have no recording of history where there's the, mud, the, the moons look like blood. And I think to myself, well, have you looked through the smog of China? If you look through, <laughs> if you look through the haze of that, you'll, it, look like, it looks beat red. Um, it, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but you get the point. There, it doesn't have to be taken literal. And there's people say this, that this happened yet, happens yet. And we're waiting for a second outpouring of the Spirit toward the end of this age in which we live. And then we'll know the day of the Lord is about to come. I'm going to seek to convince you that the other arguments don't line up with the Word of God and that the right interpretation of the dreadful day happened on 70 AD, which was a pivotal, epic point in redemptive history, and the Bible much more supports that interpretation. And as you see in your sermon notes for conclusion, we could mistakenly say to ourselves, but we're not Jews. We're not Jews. This message clearly you said in verse 14, 
is to the people of Israel, the focus on the people of Israel. It's a warning message to the people of Israel. What's in it for us? Beloved, I believe what we see here for us is a couple things in closing. Number one, God was faithful. He sent his prophet to the house of Israel first. He did do that, didn't he? He didn't abandon them. He didn't say, oh yeah, I remember I made that covenant to Abraham and through his lineage and through his people, uh, so forth and so on, and through the other, you know, other, uh, other uh, King David and, and all those others. I, I know I made that, but you know, I changed my mind now. I don't care about the people of Israel. Uh, you know what, apostles, just skip these guys. Let's, let's get out to the part, the outskirts of the other nations. Let's just do it that way. He, no, he doesn't do that. He does go to the house of Israel. So God is faithful. We see an attribute of our Lord that reminds us that he can be trusted. When he says he will do something, he will do it. So we praise God for that. But I think more appropriately what's applicable for us as Gentiles is this. Is that God is long-suffering. He come to these people who for thousands and thousands of years, even after the plague of locusts, after their kingdom had been dispersed, I mean, I, I don't know what else he would have to do. He still came to the stiff-necked, rebellious people and said, I'm giving you one last chance. You've, you killed my Messiah that I had for you. I had given you every clear indication who he was going to be, how he was going to come, and you still murdered him but I'm still calling to you to come and to receive him. That long-suffering, that, that, uh, that desire that all his elect shall be saved, that still stands true today. Not a one-for-one one parallel. No, we're not Israel. But beloved, if there's anyone here today, or anyone that could possibly listen to this message that has not bowed the knee in repentance and belief upon the Lord Jesus Christ, well, I'm not Peter, but I'm standing in the same vein and I'm calling upon you to come and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You pierce him spiritually as if it were as, as one of your enemies with your constant rejection of him. You blaspheme his name. You're an enemy of God. But today is the day of salvation. The Lord is sending forth the message that he is the risen one. Repent and come and have salvation that's only available through him. We'll pick up this theme again next Sunday, Lord willing, and we'll continue to understand how and why Peter is using Joel to point to the escape and the end of the age in which they were living in. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that there are places in the scriptures, while admittedly may be somewhat obscure, somewhat, dear Lord, difficult and mysterious. Father, through a prudent and a methodical, slow study of your word, we can be rest assured, God, that we are rightly handling it and that we are rightly interpreting the message that you have for your church today. And we pray, O oh God, that as we continue through Peter's sermon, as you inspired him to preach, and we see how he is using Old Testament passages that we begin to have a better sense of clarity and understanding, Lord, of what you were doing in that time as you were moving forward your kingdom, which we are witnessing in our own time. Father, help us to see the relevancy of these things. Help us to appreciate and grasp, Father, this early history of the church.
Help us to be better acquainted, Lord, with our own heritage as your church as we seek to minister and take your gospel message to all of the world around us. We bless you, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.